far as I can tell, the second Christmas break that we've had is over. Near as I can figure. I, I wasn't expecting a second Christmas break. It was cool for a day or two. And, uh, and then I was ready for it to go away. Or you, maybe you're the same way. Some of you say, ah, no big deal. You know, maybe, maybe you got a couple days off work out of the deal. Or maybe you say, I didn't get any time off work. I had to drive through all that mess. What, what an interesting week or so we've had with ice and snow and then more snow that they didn't know was coming or something. And it just sat here and dumped snow on us for, for 24 hours again and and then of course dealing with all of the mess that that creates and obviously there's ice down first and so goodness gracious how do you get that off the roads and and I do want to say thanks to those who've worked so hard um to to go ahead and make our our town and our community run as best we can in those kind of circumstances, those that are our public servants in a variety of ways, working in different capacities, whether it's as a first responder or as a as an elected official in Eddie Clyde's case, or others uh, who who work for the city, for the county, and and others who who you just go in and you take care of things, and so we appreciate that very very much. Uh, but we we are super glad, I think anyway, I am, to see the snow finally be melting and things maybe, maybe get back to normal. I assume there will be school tomorrow. I, I, and I don't know, uh, I haven't seen the reports, but I assume there will be school tomorrow. So tomorrow morning will be a, another semi-typical Monday after a second Christmas break. So in the morning, those of you that have had your schedules interrupted, you will have to get up maybe a little earlier than you have been getting up in the last week. Try to figure out where all your stuff is and did I do the laundry and all that sort of thing. And then you'll, you'll, maybe you'll take your shower and fellas, you might shave. Ladies, you'll put on your makeup and some of you'll do your hair if you're into that sort of thing. And, and, um, you know, if you've got something to work with there and, and, um, and 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 then you'll 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 put your clothes on. You'll get all ready. You look at yourself in the mirror and you make sure you're presentable for the day. And you think you got you got you got your face on, if you will. And then you try to gather all your stuff up that you haven't needed for the last week or so. And you got to find your backpack if you're going to school. Maybe you're packing lunch for school or for work. Keys, wallet, phone, purse, all that stuff. Where is everything? And you get all that together. And so you got your face on. You got your stuff with you, ready to face the day. And you hope you can just make it through a Monday. You know, what I've learned, I think, in, in, in 40 years of life and paying attention to people both personally and then looking at other folks, I think each morning that we get ready, I think we put on far more than just the aftershave or the makeup or the hair products or our clothes. And I think we take with us every day far more than just your purse or your wallet or keys or phone or backpack or lunch or whatever. What I've learned from experience and from paying attention to people, and maybe you've noticed this as well, is not only do we put on all that stuff, but we put on things we can't see. We put on our mask, our image, how we want the world to see us. We put that on. And we take with us not only the stuff that we need to start the vehicle and to to get through the day and to pay for this or that or whatever to make sure we got our books with us, but we take with us a lot of props and crutches that help get us through the day. And many of us have been doing it for years, years and years. And for just as long, you've been asking and not finding answers to the same old questions fighting the same old battles, who am I? And why in the world am I even here? And 
how am I supposed to live? What am I supposed to do? And the truth is that many of us showed up this morning, and if we're honest, we don't even know how to live without the props and the crutches. And we don't even know who we are without the mask and the image that we put on. I think for most of us, if that's who you are, it probably started a long time ago when you were young. Kids ask a lot of questions, and some of them they don't really voice, which are the most important questions. They want to know the answers to who am I, and why am I here, and how am I supposed to live. Those are the most important questions that they may never voice in that way, but they've got to have those things answered, and they search for them, don't they? And you've searched for them as well, probably. And maybe for some today, you showed up... Here you are with your face on and all your props with you and your crutches, and yet somewhere in you there's that little kid still trying to figure out who you are and why you're here and how you're supposed to live. I believe that God has the answers to those questions. And I believe that the answers first in Scripture are found in the very early pages of Genesis. When we go back to the very beginning to the creation of the first man and the first woman. We see what God, I think, has wanted us to know all along. We get the foundation for our very lives. If you got your Bible handy, turn with me. Genesis chapter 1. Very first, you shouldn't have any trouble finding this one. You just go to the very beginning, start turning to the right a little bit. You get through all your introductions, all that stuff. There you go. Genesis chapter 1. Our series is called Bible Stories You Thought You Knew. Some of you grew up in Sunday school, some of you didn't. Uh, Most of us have probably heard a lot of the stories that we'll cover, but what we've heard are individual stories disconnected from the rest of Scripture. That's the unfortunate thing about Sunday school or even Sunday sermons is you kind of get something that you don't know how does that fit or you don't even know that it should fit into an overall story. But understand this, the entire Bible is one big story filled with lots of little episodes that build into and support and reveal the overall story. So when we look at Bible stories in Sunday school or on Sunday mornings during a sermon or whatever, we're not looking at something disconnected. We're looking at an overall story and an individual episode. And so... That's what we're going to see this morning. I think a very, very important story that has tremendous value, huge in its importance. I want you to look with me in, in the Genesis chapter 1. Look at verse 24 to begin with. We're going to look at the, the sixth day of creation. Genesis 1, 24. And here's what the scripture says. Then God says, this is the beginning of the sixth day, let the earth produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that crawl, and the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. So God made the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, the creatures that crawl in the ground according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. Now, there's a distinction and a difference that begins in verse 26, and I want you to notice it. Look what it says back in verse 24. Let the earth produce, and it was so. And then look at verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock on the earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Then look at uh, at chapter 2, verse 7. 
little more information about the creation of, of the first humans. Then God formed the man out of the dust of the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. Now look at verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the rib at that, at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. I want you to notice some distinctions between the rest of creation and what God did in creating humans. There are some important words. He first says God does, let us make. That word make there is is a different kind of thing. A, A creation, a shaping, a molding. Different from the rest of the words used for how God created everything else. Then he says, in our image according to our likeness. No other part of creation is made in the image of God, in God's likeness, to reflect God in a special particular way. No other part of creation except humans. And then when God made Adam, it says that God formed, shaped, molded, handmade. And then God breathed into him the breath of life. No other part of creation says that. Then what, in order to make the woman... He took from the man a rib and then formed the woman in the same way, shaping, molding, making her exactly the way that she should be. Humans, apart from any other kind of creation, different from any other part of creation, are handmade by God in a very special way. In a way that no other part of creation can claim. Make sure you notice the distinction. We are God's special creation. We are not just an accidental higher form. Of creation. If you've ever seen the, the movie The Jungle Book, the old one, not the live action, the old one, there, there's a song that King Louis, the king of all the, the apes, the monkeys, that he sings. And it's called I Want to Be Like You. And it's a pretty cool, catchy song. I won't try to sing it for you. I make the movie look bad. I mean, I don't want to steal their thunder, you know. But this, the song King Louis sings to, to Mowgli. The, the human child in the movie goes a little something like, I want to be like you. He says, I want to walk like you and talk like you. I, I want to be like you, he says. And what he points to, the one distinction he says, if I could only make fire, I would be just like you. Now don't miss that subtle little message in the Jungle Book. That there's a very small distinction between the animal kingdom, if you will, and all of us. That the only thing that separates them from being like us is if they could make fire. It's a movie. It's fictional. It's a funny story. But don't miss the message. There is a very clear message from secular society that says that we are really no different from every other part of whatever happened to happen over lots of time and through chance. But Genesis shows a clear distinction. Shows that the rest of creation cannot simply become like us because we are made different from the rest. And it is this distinction from the rest of creation that we see, in which we see all of the answers to our foundational questions. It's in that distinction that we have the antidote to our identity crisis, to our midlife crisis, 
to our aging crisis, to our end-of-life crisis, to our self-esteem crisis. And the truth is, whatever our answers are on who am I and why am I here and how should I, how should I live, that's, that's how we're forming and shaping our lives. Because all of us, when we get up tomorrow morning and put our face on and take our props with us, we're all living according to who we have come to believe we are. And we're all operating according to what we believe our role is. And we're all living according to how we believe that we should operate. Of course, that is determining and shaping the outcome of our lives even now. That's why I think this story is so huge. Because if we don't look to God for the answers, we'll have them answered somewhere. We'll look inside ourselves and try to follow our hearts. Or we'll look to our friends and try to get them to tell us who we are. Or we'll look to society as a whole or to our past or our jobs or our athletic ability or our money, our grades or something. We'll look to to tell us who am I and why am I here and how should I live. Each one of us is on a search, I think, for some sort of significance in life. We all want to feel as if we matter. There's a guy that wrote a book called The Search for Significance, and he, he wrote about different traps that we can fall into. See if you can relate to these. I'll just summarize them for you. He talks about the performance trap. And the false belief that he identifies here is, is that I must meet certain standards in order to feel good about myself. The consequences, maybe you deal with these, a fear of failure or perfectionism or a drive to succeed or manipulating others so that you can achieve so that you can achieve success or you don't take healthy risks and he provides God's answer in scripture which is justification which means that God has not only forgiven me of my sins but has granted me the righteousness of Christ and because of justification I now bear Christ's righteousness and I am therefore pleasing to God I don't have to do anything perform any way Jesus has performed on my behalf and I'm already pleasing to God but some of us fall into that trap he talks about another trap which is that of the approval addict The false belief being that I must be approved by certain people in order to feel good about myself. And so as a result, we deal deal with a fear of rejection. Or constant attempts to please other people at any cost. Or we're overly sensitive to criticism. Or we withdraw from others in order to avoid their disapproval. God's answer is reconciliation. It means that I have at one point been hostile to God, but now live at peace with God because of what Jesus Christ has done. I am forgiven, and I have been brought into an intimate relationship by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And as a result, I am totally acceptable to God. Not because of me, but because of Jesus. He also talks about the blame game, meaning that those who fail, including myself, are unworthy of love and deserve to be punished. Maybe you felt that way. The consequences here include a fear of punishment, or we punish others harshly, or we blame others for our personal failures, or we withdraw from God or others. We do anything we can to avoid failure. God's answer is what the Bible calls propitiation, a fancy Bible term that means that by his death on the cross, Jesus Christ satisfied the wrath of God, and therefore I am deeply loved. I don't take the blame for my own sin. And he identifies a final one. It's the shame game. The false belief is that I am what I am and I cannot change. And I'm hopeless. And so we feel shame and hopeless and inferior. 
and we're passive and we don't have any creativity and we isolate ourselves withdrawing from other people. God's answer, of course, is new life in Christ, regeneration. Maybe you've fallen into those traps as you've searched for who am I and why am I here and how am I supposed to live. But going down any of those paths, obviously, if you've experienced it, is a terrible way to live because they're always changing and they're false sources of our significance. The only true source of our significance is the one who made us. And we are God's special creation. There are three implications I want you to look at this morning with me. Three implications to being God's special creation. First of all, as God's special creation, I exist in God's image. I exist in God's image. Look back at verse 26 of chapter 1. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Verse 27, so he created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. I am different from the rest of creation. That in and of itself should speak volumes to us about our identity, who we are, and if we matter whatsoever. Do we have any value? God relates to humans throughout Scripture, and of course even today, in a way that He relates to no other part of creation. God does not reveal Himself in the same way to the animal and plant kingdoms that He does to the human race. And likewise, humans have the opportunity to relate to God in a way that no other part of creation can. Now there's some debate over what does this mean to be made in the image of God. But if we look at Jesus, and we see Him, who the Bible tells us is the ultimate picture of the image of God, look at Jesus, you'll see God. We see a few things about Him that kind of point to, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? We see things like personality, and the, 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 the capacity for fellowship, the ability to have a relationship with God the Father, the, the ability to understand the revelation that God gives in His Word. The capacity for genuine love and deep communication and for responsibility, moral and otherwise. That's different from the rest of creation. And so as a result of being created in God's image, I have confidence that I know who I am based upon that and I know that I have inherent value. And so my value, my identity are not based on what I can do or what I have, what I look like or anything like that, but by the one who created me in his image. And all those other things, of course, just kind of make us feel worthless in the first place. What I have can easily be turned into what I don't have. What I look like can be turned into what I don't look like. What I do for a living can be turned into what I don't do for a living. What I can't do and how much better everybody else appears to be than me. And that's why we can't look to those things, trust in them for who we are. Instead... In looking to God to define us and show us who we are, we reduce the pressure to be something we're not. You ever been in that situation before? To be or to act something you're not? I find myself there from time to time. I've joked about this before, but when people start talking about fixing stuff, repairing things, I kind of nod along. Uh huh. I smile. I kind of act like I could go out and do this or that. And those of you that know me by now, you just know, look, just come on over, okay? Just come on over, because I can't do it. Cannot fix stuff. I just don't, I just, not my thing. Now, you want some baseball lessons or something like that? You want to talk about scripture? Maybe I got half a clue about stuff like that. But the rest of the stuff, I don't. 
Don't have any idea. Sometimes you kind of play along, act like something you're not, right? But when you know who God has made you to be and you become confident in that, guess what? You don't have to worry about that stuff anymore. You also liberate yourself from the need to seek everybody else's approval, which is exhausting, is it not? You're free then to discover how God has uniquely designed and gifted you. Not worried about competition with everybody else. You don't have to waste your time anymore and your energy chasing all these things that won't ever fulfill you. That ultimately leave you lonely, confused, and angry, and depressed. And really, you can become closer to people in solid, healthy, intimate relationships because you're not looking for them to give you what God has already provided for you. And you don't have to wish you were someone else because you're standing on the unchanging truth of God's Word. And that, being made in the image of God and understanding that God defines who I am and my value, that changes how I relate to myself and to everyone else. Because guess what? This morning, as you look at me, do you know who you're looking at? Not your pastor. Not somebody who happens to be identified as Brad Burns. You are looking at someone created in the image of God. And as I look at you, do you know who I'm looking at? Not Elm Grove Congregation, but individuals, all each created, male and female, in the image of God himself. And so when I look in the mirror, when I look at you, it changes how I view who I see. I exist in God's image, and so I'm different and valuable and unique, and therefore I know who I am because God has made me. And moving forward, I'm unshaken in my identity, not blown back and forth all the time because I live from the foundation that I have been created in the image of God. Second implication, as God's special creation, I act as God's representative. I act as God's representative. Now, this is the part of Scripture where God places man, humans, here on earth in his image. Look at verse 28. Chapter 1, verse 28. Look what God says to them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. See what God is telling them to do? Be my representative. Verse 28 says it very clearly. Be fruitful and multiply. Join God in His creative efforts in the ongoing population of the world. Fill the earth just like God did in His creation. Created the container, then He filled it up. Subdue it. Bring order, God is saying. From any chaos that you see, bring order. Rule it. Set boundaries. Be my park keeper, He's saying. Be my estate manager. Take care of things for me. In verse 15 of chapter 2, God says he put the man in the garden to cultivate it and to keep it. So as God's representative, I have a role to play, a calling to fulfill, to cultivate, to protect, to use creativity, to work, to display the kingdom and the rule of God wherever I go, to confront the formless places and formless lives and bring something from them by the grace of God. To look at what is distorted and confused and to bring God's image there. To communicate, to lead, to love. I represent God. So no matter my stage of life, no matter my line of work, my calling supersedes all of that. Don't miss this. Your calling is the same as my calling. And that is to be God's representative wherever we go. 
to take the kingdom of God, no matter where you work, what stage of life you're in, whomever you might be around. Just because, and I'll say this to our older folks, just because you have retired from your active working vocational life does not mean that your calling has ended. It does not mean that you are useless before God and here in our church and in this community. Because your calling supersedes anything you might have ever done for a living. You are not what you made a living doing. That is not your calling. You are God's representative. And young people, you may think that your life just can't get here fast enough. That one day, someday, boy, if I could just do this, and one day, someday, if I could just get through school, and then I'm going to go to college, or I'm going to start working, or I've got all these dreams and whatever, guess what? That is not what God has called you to do. Do you know what God has called you to do right now where you are going to school tomorrow morning when you don't even want to? God has called you to be his representative in that class and for that teacher and for those students that sit around you and for those people that you play ball with and all the folks that you're around. That's what God has called you to do. You can do that anywhere. You do not have to be in any particular line of work or stage of life to fulfill your calling. And to those who are stuck in a dead-end job. Those who say, I just, what in the world am I even doing? Why, why would I get up and get excited about doing that? I mean, I, you know, okay, I pretend like I like it because if I don't, I'm going to get fired. You know, I've got to make some money. Listen, that is not your calling. It is so much higher. Maybe tomorrow morning you get up and you say, you know what? My calling is to be God's representative where I go. And man, what a difference that will make in how you operate in your job. I am God's representative, instilled with responsibility and possibility. So I subdue and rule and lead and order and relate and love just like God would do if he were physically present on earth. And so I know my role in life. I don't have to guess why I'm here. So moving forward, I just bring God's kingdom wherever I go. Third implication. As God's special creation, I operate under God's authority. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. We're close to being done, but don't pack up yet, all right? Some good stuff under this last one, all right? Good stuff right here. Don't pack up yet. Oh, you got all your blanks filled out, all right? There's more blank space. Write some other notes down. Remember later on, all right? Don't pack up yet. Bell hadn't rung yet. <clears throat> Chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And look at this. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly or surely die. There was a line that God drew. Why did God draw this line? I think one of the reasons why God drew a line that says you may do this, but you may not do this, was to show that he is in authority. His word distinguishes between what I am free to do and what I am not free to do. God is in authority. Who was not an ultimate authority? Adam and Eve. They were not told, you go do whatever you want to do. Doesn't matter. Because I'm taking a break, man. All this creative work has got me worn out, and I need to go on a for a while 
and eat some good food and play some shuffleboard and lay out on the deck and go hang out on one of those islands, do some scuba diving a little bit. That's what I'm going to do. God didn't say any of that stuff. He didn't go join a country club and lay out by the pool and play 18 holes every day. He didn't do that. God said, here is what you are to do. Here are the boundaries. I am in authority. You are under my authority. Do you know the problem, greatest problem that we all have? It ain't out there in society somewhere that those people don't live under God's authority. Guess what? It's us. That's our biggest problem. Adam and Eve were accountable to God to live under his authority. They were to trust him. And God had just given them all kinds of stuff to say, look, I've given you all this. Look at, look how much you can trust me. Look at how blessed you are in this great garden of Eden. And they were to obey him. What did he say? Be fruitful. You can eat from all this other stuff, but you must not eat here. There is a boundary. There is one in authority. They were to work for him, to keep and to cultivate. Everything they did was to be under God's authority. Their relationship, don't miss this, their relationship was to be under God's authority. They weren't to do with marriage whatever they felt like doing. Define it however they wanted to. God had clearly said, here is what it is to be. And we see from the very beginning of Scripture and implied throughout and reinforced throughout that the that God's design for marriage is one man, one woman for life in a covenant relationship. Period. End of story. There is no way you can do biblical hermeneutics, gymnastics to get through and figure out that marriage is anything but that. It's impossible. They were to be under God's authority in their relationship and in their work to be God's representative no matter what they did and everything they did to be under his authority. And as the first humans representing all the rest of us, when they receive these boundaries, guess who else receives them as well? We do. We receive God's boundaries. The boundary is always the word of God. When the prophets showed up to declare what God has said, you know what they always said in the King James Version? Because they spoke King James English back then, by the way. Do you realize that? Way back in ancient Israel, they spoke King James English, just so we would have it. They said, sort of, in King James English anyway, Thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. Or here's what God says. The Word of God, whatever He has said, is always the boundary line. We don't have to like it. Our society doesn't have to agree with it. We don't have to feel like it's really what we want to get on board with, but it's there. And there it is, and we are still under God's authority. So when I present to you the Word of God, guess what? You don't sit under my authority. You and I together sit under the authority of the Word of God. This is what God has said. Then it's my choice, my decision. Am I going to get on board with what God said or not? Because His authority ain't changing. Period. End of story. Don't have to like it. I don't even have to agree with it. But it is what it is. I got to deal with it. Either now or one day in the future. I got to deal with it. I'm under God's authority. So I'm instilled with a conscience, a sense of right and wrong, and recognize there are boundaries for me. And so I know how to live. Moving forward, I trust and obey and serve and love and live according to God's word. So from Genesis, the early part, do you see what we get? 
we get the answers to life most, life's most important questions. Who am I? Someone made in God's image. Why am I here to act as God's representative? How should I live under God's authority? Does that matter where I live? Who I'm around? What I do for a living? My stage of life? Doesn't matter at all. Those things never change. I know all that from Genesis. But you know what else I know? I know that I, just like you, and you just like me, I've drifted from that. I've rebelled against it, as a matter of fact. Who I am, why I'm here, how I'm supposed to live. And if we're honest with ourselves and each other this morning, then we recognize that our lives do not look anything like what God designed them originally to be. They are not very good according to God's standard. Why? Because I've turned from who God created me to be. I have not fulfilled my God-given role perfectly in life. And I have not lived in absolute obedience to God's Word. And so here I stand, over here, and there God is, it seems, way over there somewhere else. What's the answer to that? What do I need to do? Do you realize the great truth of Christianity... The great answer to that question, what do I need to do in order to make things right with God? Do you know what the answer is? Nothing. Do you know why? Because there's nothing that I can do to get from here to way over there to where God is. I'm stuck. And I can't do it. Do you know what the great truth continues though? To unfold, the great truth is that because I can't do anything, God has done it for me. Every other religion or way of thinking will tell you, here's what you need to do to get to God and be good enough for Him. You know what Christianity tells you? You can't be good enough. Here's what God has done to get to you. And don't miss the distinction. Today is not a pep talk to go out and be who God made you to be. Just... Go put a smile on your face. You know what? Just go act like God's representative. What would Jesus do? Wear your bracelet. Get that thing dusted off. Put it back on from 1990, whatever it was. Put that thing back on and just what would Jesus do today? Let me give you a little pep talk. It's not what this is about. It's not a pep talk. It's a call to repentance and faith. Because the way back to who God made us to be is not through my own effort, but through the effort of Jesus Christ, the perfect sinless sacrifice on the cross for me and for you. And so today, if you find yourself so far, so confused, so apart from where you believe and you know that God wants you to be, it's not about, let me just fix things. It's about, God, I'm broken. I can't fix myself. Lord Jesus, I cry out to you. I repent of my sin and I believe in you as the way back to who I am supposed to be, to why I'm here, and to how I'm supposed to live. Let's pray together.